Good morning. Merry Christmas. Today we are going to finish our series, Planned and Unplanned Parenthood, by looking at Matthew chapter 2. After three weeks in this series, it's my hope that the Bible has convinced you that the birth of Jesus was 100% planned by God. Regardless of how unplanned it might look to the people, the human beings in the Christmas story, or to those of, like us who are now reading about it now, God planned this birth thousands of years before it happened. What we call everyday human normal life, from our perspective, God was doing miraculous things behind the scenes to accomplish his will and the birth of his son, Jesus. Remember how he brought Boaz and Ruth together hundreds of years before Jesus was born. One might think, well, people getting married, that happens all of the time. That's normal, and that is true. But it was a famine in the land that caused Ruth to move and then to meet Boaz. So my point there is, God stops the rain to do His will. God causes the crops to stop growing to fulfill His will. And then once married, Boaz and Ruth have a baby. And again, this sounds very normal, like, Doug, this is what happens when people get married, except God is the one responsible for this pregnancy. It is very clear, it's exceptionally clear, that God was responsible in Ruth becoming pregnant with a child named Obed. And that was really important because Obed was King David's grandfather, all setting up the plan that God had that Jesus would come from the lineage of David. God controls the sky, God controls the ground, and God controls this pregnancy, all part of God's plan for this coming birth of the Messiah, Jesus. And remember, how about Caesar Augustus? He's making a decree that all the people of the land should be taxed, and he's taking this census, and he wants all the people to return to their homes. And again, one would say, taxes? That sounds pretty normal except for the fact that God is behind the scenes reigning over the affairs of even government. Because it was God's plan for Joseph and Mary to go to Bethlehem so that that would be the place where she gave birth to Jesus. God controls even the politics. Don't ever think that God doesn't have a plan. Don't ever think that the here and now is not connected with God's master plan. He has a plan then, he has a plan now, and he has a plan for the future. The prophets in the Old Testament, they foretold the coming birth. They said that Jesus would come from the king, the line of King David, and he did. Why? Because it was God's plan. They said he would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, and he was. Why? Because it was the plan of God. Luke recorded it this way, chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. Then the angel told her, Don't be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So it might be true for us human beings that an unplanned pregnancy only becomes planned 
only after we find out someone is pregnant. Like, parents talk like that sometimes. Oh, this is our unplanned little one. This is our unplanned bundle of joy right here. This is our little late-in-life surprise. I'm sorry if your parents talk about you like that. But with God, every child is planned, regardless of the circumstances. And when it comes to Jesus, his birth was planned in the most remarkable way. Isaiah 55, 8 is correct. For my thoughts, God's thoughts, are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. And the implication is that his thoughts and his ways are better than our thoughts and our ways. Because verse 9 goes on to say, For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if you're thinking here, if you're one here today thinking, I can't believe all this virgin birth stuff. Of course you can't. Nobody can apart from God making it known for us in a way that we really do understand. It's Mary saying, how can this be? I haven't been with a man. But once the angel explains God's plan, that plan that is way different than the way we think, she responds with, oh. I am your humble servant. Use me. It's Joseph, who's such a good guy, a gentleman, that he's going to end this relationship with Mary without a lot of drama. He's going to do it quietly. But once the angel reveals God's plan, you know, that plan that is higher and better than our plans, Joseph responds with obedience. And Mary's Mary yet does not have a sexual relationship with her until after Jesus is born. Talk about God's way being different than our ways. That's a honeymoon that looks a lot different than most, I dare say. But that's because God's plan is very much different than our plan as human beings. So after three weeks in this series, be convinced that the birth of Jesus 100% is planned by God. But if you're still not convinced, or you haven't been here through this series, this is your first time here, let me tell you the goal of this sermon, that you will be convinced that the birth of Jesus was planned by God, and that the reason it was planned, and the reason that he was born, was so he would be worshipped. To be worshipped by you and me and every person in the universe which gets us to the part of the series when the, when the Magi show up in Matthew chapter 2. This is the section of the Christmas story that would be like, uh, it'd be like scene 4 in the children's Christmas pageant. All right, Scene 1, the angel shows up and scares Mary and Joseph nearly to death, gives them the news about the, the baby's going to be born, and surprise, you, Mary, and you, Joseph, you will be the earthly parents of this baby. Scene two is the angel and the host of angel that he brings with him to tell the good news to the shepherds who are out in their fields attending their flocks by night that Jesus was born in O little town of Bethlehem. And they run off to go and worship him. Scene three is that ever famous, ever debated manger scene. Not debated in that the birth of Jesus happened or didn't happen. Everyone agrees that it happened but debated in all the little details. Things like, there was no room for them in the inn. Was that like the Holiday Inn in Suites? 
Or is that an inn like a guest bedroom? That type stuff. All right, and what about the innkeeper that commonly shows up in these, these uh, Christmas pageants? Who apparently told Mary and Joseph that there was no room for them in the inn. Yet, there's no mention of an innkeeper in the Bible. And then there's the whole Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And it seems that the background of that scene is always in a stable or a barn. But it never quite says so in the Bible. I hope this is not crushing news for you and what you believe about Christmas. But all these little details about what really did happen and what really didn't happen all start adding up. And if we're not careful, we can start believing things that may not have even ever happened. But my point of all that is to say this. Everything in the Bible is important. But some things are more important than other things. There are lesser points and there are greater points when it comes to the Bible. And our focus and our attention on these points should be kept accordingly. Which now gets us to scene four. Scene four is the coming of the Magi. The arrival of wise men from the east. And I believe there are some points in this scene that are lesser points and greater points for us to learn and to deeply consider. Consider the greater points concerning Jesus and how it impacts and applies to our lives. So for the note takers, or those who just like to have an idea of how much longer this is going to be, <laughs> here's an outline for today. One, the lesser points. Two, the main point, And three, the application point. And you can picture this, this outline like a sub-sandwich or a really, really good peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, the outside is good, the bread is helpful, it complements that sandwich, but what's on inside is what is really delicious. It's really what's savory and mouth-watering, so good. And really, it's not the outline that is this way, it's what's in the text in Matthew chapter 2 that's this way. There are some lesser points for us to chew on, but the main point here, if we miss it, it would be like just eating the bread of a sandwich and missing the really good stuff. So we can't afford to miss it. And then once we see it, by God's grace, we can act on it the right way. So follow along as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them to the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. Maybe in the margin of your Bible, right there, write the word liar and circle Herod. We'll come back to that. After hearing the king, verse 9, they went on their way, 
And there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. What is Matthew saying? What does he want us to know? What does he want us to believe? What is at stake for our soul? What does he want us to do? What is the author's intent of these 12 verses? I want to give you some things that I think are some lesser points for us first. First, he wants us to know from verse 1 that men identified as wise men, also called magi, also called kings, came to see Jesus. And in the fourth scene of the Christmas pageant, it seems like there's always three wise men that show up. But the text doesn't say that. Text doesn't imply it. I suppose you can go with the idea that, well, there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that each one had one gift, so yeah, there must have been three. But no one knows for sure. Well, who are these wise men? What do they do? Where do they come from? How many of them are there? Trying to figure out all of these men and how many there were, that is a lesser point. They came from the east. But the east could include several different places. Scholars have their own ideas. Maybe it was Babylon. Maybe it was Persia, which would be like today our modern-day Iran. Maybe it was Assyria. Maybe it was somewhere else. Maybe they rode camels. Maybe they rode horses. Doubtful that they walked, because most scholars believe it was 800, 900, 1,000 miles that they traveled to come to Jerusalem. Some say they know the exact three names of these wise men. And believe it or not, as I was studying, some even say that they have the three skulls on display in a museum. I don't know. Maybe. Magi, wise men, they are talked about in the Bible in other places. Daniel is one place. Daniel, even though he was a prisoner of war, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he placed Daniel as an overseer of a group of people known as wise men. It seems that this group of people, they were part cult, part magicians, part astrologists, part astronomers. They were stargazers and dreamers and interpreter of dreams. Maybe, perhaps Daniel taught them about a star foretelling of the coming Jewish king, and that through the years these teachings were passed down through the generations. Maybe. Traveling wise men were very, very powerful men. Best we can tell from history, these guys had a lot to say when it came to who was and who wasn't going to be a king in the eastern lands. And when they traveled, whoa, they traveled with small armies to protect them. Never knows, those guys never make the nativity scene. The army... It's just the three wise men wearing fancy clothes and hats all gathered around a manger. But it seems like something very different is going on. Look at verse 11. 
Verse 11 says, after they found out where Jesus was, they entered the what? House. And they saw what? Child with Mary, his mother. They don't find him at a barn or a stable or a cave, but at a house. And they don't find him as a baby, but a child. There is a gap in time from when the shepherds went and found Jesus lying in the manger and worshipped him from the time when the wise men came to see him. The lesser point here is trying to figure out all the details of the wise men. The bigger point for us to know is that Matthew wrote this gospel to declare and convince people of his day and now people of our day that the newborn baby Jesus was a king. And the fact that the wise men came from the east, whoever they were and what an Whatever they entirely do, they came to honor him as a king. And that fact has great significance because it's confirming Matthew's teaching that Jesus Christ is a king. Matthew 1-2, the wise men came asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So yes, I believe we can keep on singing songs like We Three Kings, even though we don't know how many there were. And yes, you can set up your nativity scenes with the wise men gathered around the shepherds and the barn animals, even though we don't know all the details. But what we need to know is that the wise men thought he was a king. Now why they came, oh, that's the biggest point. That's the main point. But before we look at that, I want to show you one more lesser point. And that has to do with the star mentioned in verses 2, 9, and 10. The star is also a lesser point. It's an important point. It's a needed point, or it wouldn't be included with these verses. I get that. But all the details about the star is not the main point. Yet, boy, oh boy, oh boy, have people been thrown off by this star. And sadly, they get thrown off in a way that makes them then miss the main point. And if you think about this, the Bible has lots of stuff like this. Over and over, the Bible just baffles and raises our curiosity of our mind about just how certain things happen. How did this star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? It does not say that it led them or that it went before them. It only says that they saw the star in the east. See that in verse 2? For we saw his star in the east, and now here they are standing in Jerusalem asking to find Jesus. How'd that happen? But then once in Jerusalem, how did that star go before them in this little five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? That's what it says in verse 9. And there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. It's like the star reappeared. It wasn't with them in that whole trip. And then once they get to Jerusalem, there it is. And now it does move them. And then this moving star goes these five-ish miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and it stops and it stands still. How did that happen? This kind of stuff can make your head spin. And there are numerous of ideas and there are lots of theories trying to explain this star. Maybe it was some unusual planet movement. Maybe it was a comet. 
Maybe it was a supernova. Maybe it was some special kind of light. We just don't know. But at the end of the day, all of these theories have very little spiritual significance because they are merely man's theories and ideas anyway. There are so many miraculous happenings found in the Bible. Creation. Now, how did God do that? How did he take nothing and make something? How did nothing become everything? Or Noah's ark. How did those animals get to the ark anyway? And where did they all fit? And how did they eat? Were the lions next to the lambs and the snakes next, next to the mice? I mean, all these things that can just make your mind go. Or how did that bush burning with Moses in the wilderness work out? I mean, it is one thing for a bush to catch on fire. I get that. But that bush was never consumed. It's like it stayed green. How did the Red Sea split? Was it a windy day? Tornado come touch down? How did the manna fall from the sky? How did the hungry lion not eat Daniel in that den? How did Jonah survive in that fish? And oh, just how did that donkey talk? Now, if you don't know about these happenings, they're all recorded in the Bible, which we would believe as Christians makes them true. I'd encourage you to read them. But the danger here is that the focus becomes on the lesser points and we miss the main point. We miss God. We miss the greatness of God. We miss the holiness of God. We miss the ugliness of sin or we miss the helplessness of humanity. We miss the gospel. So when it comes to this star, can we just say that it seems obvious like really obvious that it's doing something that it cannot do on its own? It is guiding the wise men to Jesus to worship him. And God is behind it. The lesser points are meant to funnel us to the main point. And here's the main point. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. God is guiding people to Jesus to worship Jesus. God is guiding people to Jesus to worship Jesus. The wise men are not doing this on their own. Matthew 2, 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. That's the main point of this text. That's the main point of the Bible. God is to be worshipped. God is to be center. And God will see that his will is done by exerting his power and his wisdom and his will over all things in the universe, including a star. Just like a famine caused Ruth to go. 
Just like a government policy caused Joseph and Mary to go. God is influencing a star or something like it in the sky to get people from the east to go and worship him. This is God's plan. To guide people to Jesus. He did it then and he's doing it now. Look at Matthew 24, 14. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. God's plan for the entire world's population is to make his son known and have his son worshipped. This is God's will for every person in every continent. This is God's will for people living in Timbuktu, and it's God's will for me and you. And for the people in your neighborhood, and in your office where you work, and in your classes at school, and in your home, God is guiding people to worship, worship, worship Jesus. That's the main point. And there is something remarkable here in this passage. The people God is leading to his son are most likely enemies of Israel, which makes them also enemies of God. The wise men from the east most likely means enemy nations from the east. Whether it's Babylon, Assyria, Persia, all, all of these are well-known enemy nations, and yet here God is drawing them to his son. That is remarkable. Oh, it is so true that his ways are different than our ways. This is not how we would draw it up. And though these guys have impressive sounding titles, wise men, magi, the Bible always talks about these kinds of people in negative ways. These aren't the wise men that we talked about back in the Proverbs series. These guys are wise in their own eyes. They're wise in their own ideas, their own understandings. We should not trust this kind of a wise man. Moses was wiser than the wise men of his day. They couldn't keep up with him when he stood there in front of Egyptians, the Egyptian pharaoh. Daniel was wiser than the wise men in Babylon. They couldn't, out, they couldn't do dreams. They couldn't tell the dreams, but Daniel could because God was helping him. Time and time again in Scripture, these wise men are spoken of not, posit not positively, but only negatively in the Bible. And yet now, here they are coming, not to make trouble, not to make war, but to worship. Just like God planned. And they are overjoyed. They have gifts that they're giving, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all as an expression of worship. There's actually two other enemies mentioned in this story. Herod is the main one mentioned, but then he has his sidekick buddies not mentioned by name, but just by titles. Chief priests and scribes are also enemies. Why was Herod so deeply disturbed? Why was Jerusalem so disturbed? disturbed why did herod lie to the wise men saying that he also wanted to worship the baby 
That obviously wasn't true because in verse 13, an angel appeared to Joseph and told him, flee into Egypt because, verse 13, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Not everyone looking for Jesus intends for it to be worship, but can even have their own agenda. But God won't be tricked on this. Herod was probably deeply disturbed for two reasons. One, you know, having enemy leaders from nearby enemy nations just unexpectedly showing up in your land, that might get you a little disturbed. Like, what's happening here? And then two, being told that the king of Jews was just born, when you were the self-imposed king of the Jews, that's probably reason to be disturbed. And if you do a little background check on King Herod, I think it's very easy to understand why Jerusalem was disturbed. They were disturbed because Herod was disturbed. Because when Herod was disturbed, he had a reputation of being a madman. He, constant, he was constantly disturbed and paranoid about losing his kingdom, his throne, that he would go on these execution sprees. History says that he even killed three of his own sons when he thought that they were conspiring to take away his throne. And one of those sons was charged and executed just days before Herod died. I'm sure all of Jerusalem was on code red. And they were right, because shortly after the wise men left the area, Herod puts out the command to kill all babies two years old and younger. Herod was an enemy of Jesus. And then there's the chief priests and the scribes who knew the Old Testament prophet words. He, they even quoted the words, telling King Herod and the wise men where they could find the baby. I mean, if you think about it, everyone in that city, everyone in Jerusalem should have left. The entire town should have made the five-mile trip to Bethlehem. Not just the wise men. Everyone should have left to worship baby Jesus and to give him gifts. The whole town should have made a trucking convoy down to Bethlehem. How sad that these religious folks, they had the truth that the entire world needs to hear. And they didn't share it, or they wouldn't share the good news that the Messiah had come. That's tragic. Which gets to the application point. It's 2,000 years later from the birth of Jesus. Nothing has changed. God is still guiding people to his son, and there still are two responses. There are still people like Herod and the scribes who respond by plotting against Jesus, rejecting Jesus, ignoring Jesus, denying Jesus. And there are still people like wise men who follow God's leading, find Jesus, fall to their knees, and worship Jesus. And they are overcome with joy. And the application, I think, is this. How will you respond to God's leading you to Jesus? How, you, how will you respond to Jesus? How will you share the good news? It has always been God's plan for His Son to be known and to be worshipped. How do you and I align with God's plan?
Let's pray. Father, just with a very capital T, thank you for giving us Jesus. The one person we can put all of our hope in to fix all that is wrong, namely, my sin. And though we don't know all the details of these lesser points, so thankful that you have made the main point so obvious. That you want Jesus to be known and to be lifted up and to be worshipped. Father, I would ask that each and every person who claims the name of Jesus would be committed to such a task that we would live in such a way and that we'd speak in such a way that the good news is known. That the people of our Ocala community would not be in the dark about the good news of Jesus, but that we would profess his name, that we would share the Christmas story even in August and September. And Father, you are so gracious and kind that you are still calling people to your Son for the very first time. And it's probably very likely in a room this size with this many people that this good news message reaches a person or people who need to be like the wise men and follow your lead and bend their knee willingly, freely, with joy overflowing and profess, Jesus, you are God. You are my God. You are the one who can take away my sins and forever be in relationship with you. So I would ask, Lord, that you would do your will just like you cause famines and pregnancies and stars, that you would even in this time do your will. Move what needs to be moved. Stop what needs to be stopped. Make our hearts soft and pliable to hear and to apply the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.